you have got to preserve cash and you got to pivot when you've got to pivot. Okay, welcome back to the Marketing Playbook presented by Details Interactive. Here you'll take away three game-winning marketing plays every episode to take back to your team. I'm your host, Mark Friedman, and my career has been focused on direct-to-consumer marketing, direct mail, physical retail, and digital commerce. This is episode number 27, and today's guest is Sucharita Kadali. Before we get started, a quick thank you as always to Max Branstetter of the Wild Business Growth Podcast for producing this episode. You can reach him at max at maxpodcasting.com to help bring your podcast to life. Let's open the playbook. Ready, break. Well, hello, everyone. Thank you for joining the Marketing Playbook podcast. Today, I'm joined by Sucharita Kadali, who works for Forrester Research and is the principal analyst serving e-business and channel strategy professionals. We're going to hear about what brought Sucharita to her career in research and her views on this crazy year of 2020 and what she sees for 2021 and beyond with respect to online and retail commerce. This is going to be the last show of 2020, my first year doing the podcast, and I hope that the listeners found the guests and the information interesting. We'll be back in early 2021 to continue the podcast. Sucharita, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Mark. Well, I'm glad that you were able to uh, make some time. I, I appreciate it. I know that uh, for somebody that's focused on e-tail and, and retail, this is a, a busy time of the year, so, so thank you for doing it always like to get the the first story from uh, people that I talk to on the show, just a little bit about, you know, how you grew up, um, how perhaps that upbringing had something to do with, you know, the career you wound up uh, taking on. Good question. I, I don't know that my, <laughs> my upbringing, um, you know, necessarily led to where I am now. If um, my, you know, if anything, my up bringing would have led me to, to go be a doctor because that's what, you know, all Indian children usually grow up to be. Um, but uh, in, in, my, in my case, um, you know, kind of, I think I, I just was terrible at science when I was, young, when I was younger. So maybe that, that was probably the single biggest driver of where I ended up where um, I am now. And I, I tended to be better at the quant part of, uh, you know, kind of any type of studies. Um, I, you know, was better probably at math than, than I was definitely at science at the sciences. Um, so I ended up studying economics when I was in college, and that took me down. Um, you know, usually when people major in economics, they they just go get you know jobs usually at some some firm after after graduation. So, and that's what I did. I, I took a job at a company and um, it happened to be um, a large U.S. company. It was Disney. Um, and, uh, and that just kind of took me down this path of consumer facing businesses. And, um, and I don't know that I consciously wanted to ever end up in, in retail. I didn't have an aversion to it. I just didn't know anything about it. But what did happen was the internet boom, the first internet boom in the late 90s, the one that begat, you know, Amazon 
Amazon, eBay, and, and all of the, that generation of companies. A lot of those entrepreneurs, um, not the hyper, you know, not the ones that, that became the, the superstars, but, you know, there were, there were a whole bunch of other companies that raised money and um, that I, I happened to be in their, their, the orbits of, of some of those entrepreneurs because um, a lot of them came out of Disney. They, you know, kind of, I just happened to have graduated from college around that time and, um, you know, kind of landed in one of those e-commerce companies. Um, and, uh, and that took me down the path of, of retail and, um, and I liked it and it came, it came naturally to me. Um, you know, I think that's a, something that I think is important when people make decisions about their career in general is that, you know, you have to pick the combination of what, what do you like with what, what are you good at? And for me, that was retail. Oh, that's, that's really interesting. So Harvard economics, and then your first job was um, Disney. So in, in what kind of a role, you know, were they hiring, um, you know, economics majors from Harvard? They had a division called the Strategic Planning Group, and it was a bunch of ex-consultants and bankers um, that were in that role. It was, um, at that time, Disney, the CEO was Michael Eisner, so, and he had a strategic planning function. And that strategic planning function um, wrote the five-year plan, which was an annual process, but it also was um, entrusted with any major strategic decisions um, for the company just thinking through innovation strategies and what came next, as well as um, mergers and, and acquisitions. The Literally, I think within one month of my joining, they'd closed the ABC Cap Cities acquisition, which was one of the biggest acquisitions, I think, ever in business history up until that time. You know, so a large part of my, my time there was, um, you know, kind of working on projects that involved the integration of those properties. Um, and one of the biggest properties that was part of that acquisition was ESPN. So, you know, the kinds of things that that group worked on was launching the ESPN magazine and, um, you know, kind of having some kind of a experiment around, you know, kind of if you imagined ESPN as a Chuck E. Cheese for grownups, what would it look like? So, you know, that those kinds of things. Yeah, that must have been a really fun uh, kind of an environment uh, and experience. So that's great. And and so you so you had you know quite a bit of time at, at Disney. Ultimately, you made your way uh, to Saks. Uh, and tell us about the role there. Yes. Yeah, so that was um, at a, a point in the company's history. That was in the early 2000s. So um, and just to kind of frame that timing. So we are, you know, kind of after the first dot com crash, you know, you're kind of, um, you know, it's it's Google is around, but Facebook is just being born, time period where people were still <laughs> investing in things like you know, the MSN shopping channel. And um, <laughs> I think, I think I still had a, you know, kind of, I, I had an AOL contract, you know, an AOL shopping contract at the time. So that, so, so that just kind of frames where we are in time. E-commerce for Saks at that time was a small single digit percent of its sales. It was like, you know, two or 3%. The stores were still a huge part of, um, 
everybody's focus. Um, and But there was a new CEO when I had joined, and he was a gentleman that actually came from a company called eLuxury. And the reason that's important is that it was one of those first-generation 90s um, experiments that LVMH actually had in e-commerce. And, you know, kind of that was their their attempt to understand, you know, kind of how people were, were buying luxury goods online. Um, but, you know, kind of this, this CEO, um, you know, was interested in trying to help e-com be as successful as it could be. Um, his belief was that you needed a siloed e-com organization, which is very interesting because, you know, kind of, I think a lot of CEOs subsequent to that have really tried to roll e-com into other parts of, of their organization. But he, he just believed that, you know, if you don't have um, a siloed org, you're not going to get the resources and you're not going to have the attention from merchants and store operators to do what you need to do to help it thrive, you know, which is interesting. I mean, it's, it's informed a lot of my thinking around org structure even since then because you know kind of it it almost suggests that you know kind of there are times when silos make sense and there are times when it doesn't make sense um, but I think that you know kind of given how early the company was and how much it needed um, you know kind of a little bit of space to to do its own thing um, that was that you know that was the right decision for that company at that time there were there were a, a, you know kind of other issues that um, you know also have informed a lot of my my insights since then um, you know Saks at that time was a hundred percent filled e-commerce um, transactions were filled from like, I think three or four different stores. And that was candidly, that was a disaster because you know, they could never find the items and they had like a 50% return and cancel rate. If anything, it has um, just, it gave me a lot of great insight into the importance of, um, you know, kind of really, really making sure that you had all of those elements of omni-channel and inventory management rock solid um, in order to, if you wanted to drive success. So I, I was, I'm going to go a little bit out of uh, the way I had thought about this, but you brought up the topic of org. So I'm, I'm sure in the role that you have in, in research today at Forrester, and we'll come back and, and tee that up, but, you know, org is such a, a very interesting thing because, you know, I've been at this a while as well. And, you know, I got involved in, in the e-commerce business through catalog uh, retailers and, you know, in the early 2000s, which you you kind of just laid out, it seemed that the the way forward was to create these silos. You know, we had a catalog team, we had a web team, and they really weren't thinking about it as, as customer focused. They were thinking about it, you know, how we were going to ring the sale. Things have changed a lot, but maybe I'm leading the witness here, but do you still find you know, situations where you, you leave a conversation with a, a retailer and scratch your head about the org that they have in place to service their channels? Oh, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, there no question ab about that. And, um, it, you know, a lot of, I, you know, I just had a conversation the other day with a company where, you know, I mean, I, I, I didn't even know what their, their goals were. It just sounded like they wanted they just wanted, they want to, it was like a power grab where, you know, it's, it's, you know, kind of how can we just get more autonomy to make decisions, you know, versus what are you trying to achieve? And, you know, kind of what's the right way to achieve what you're trying to achieve? And, you know, kind of, is it, it wasn't even higher sales growth. I mean, it was, it was just, you know, kind of how can we, how can we have the autonomy to set our own promotions? You know, I mean, it was, it was just a very, um, 
convoluted approach to, um, you know, to strategy. I and, and I think that that's, that's Mark, probably one of the biggest um, challenges with, you know, a lot of companies when I, when I talk to individuals um, is that, you know, kind of they're not necessarily in a position to ask about the, they're not in a position to impact the larger company. They may not you know, kind of, so, so, so a lot of their decisions and a lot of what frames why they're asking questions are about how can I make this better for me and how do I help myself professionally versus, you know, what's the right decision to help this company. It's an interesting conundrum because I, I get it, right? I mean, you have to, people, you know, I mean, everybody's got to look out for themselves um, and they're probably only a handful of people who are really in that position to ask the big question of, you know, what's right for the company. And unfortunately, often those people, you know, don't bother asking or they don't ask the right people. Yeah, it's still amazing to me that there's uh, still this struggle of, of how do you structure these businesses to, to service the customer, but it sounds like you're seeing that. So you, you, um, you, you had your SACS experience and then from there, you, I believe you go to Forrester. So, you know, I, I kind of look at being on the brand side for, you know, most of my career, um, I look at the provider side as the dark side. So what pushed you into the dark side? <laughs> Interesting you say that. Well, fortunately, I, um, you know, I don't see Forrester as the dark side. It's, um, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> I can't imagine, I've been here for almost 15 years now and, and couldn't imagine being anywhere else. Um, it's a, it's a unique role where, you know, kind of the provider side that a lot of people may, you know, shy away from tend to be sales functions. And that, that if I was in a sales function, I, I don't know how I would have survived. Um, the, you know, where I am now, it's, um, it's more thought leadership. It's actually probably more of a, of an academia and think tank type of role. Um, so it's, it's very, it's different than I think your traditional service provider. And um, the conversations that I tend to have with people are very much about kind of sharing insights and information and having discussions to help them with their strategies. And I don't get involved at all in sales conversations. Um, I think that it would have, it would be much more difficult if if I were. Um, I don't think I would have in, I would I don't think I would enjoy it nearly as much as I do if I if I were in in those kinds of conversations. But um, but it, but you know kind of the reason that I you know kind of what Forrester does and the unique part of the landscape that that it occupies is is one of thought leadership. And it is, um, I describe it as a combination of, of academia, as I'd mentioned before, a little bit of consulting, um, and even a little bit of journalism, because we do a lot of writing and um, a lot of, uh, you, you know, storytelling and a lot of, um, you, you know, kind of shaping dialogue and, and you know, kind of a narrative around, around different topics. Um, and and that's, that's, that's all stuff that's very, very interesting to me. It's it's about strategic thinking around what is important or what's not important, or um, you know how how does how does a business actually operate, or um, you know kind of what's the the long term prognosis for something. I mean, those are those are the kinds of questions that that I enjoy spending time thinking about, and that's the kind of stuff that this um, this job allows me to spend time thinking about. 
That's great. Well, I, I've been reading your work for years and uh, I've learned so much from the things that you've written and the thought leadership that you've provided. So thank you for all that. So we're recording here, um, you know, December 10th or so, and, and the show will go live, you know, sometime next week. Uh, we, we've obviously been sitting here for the last nine months in the middle of a pandemic. So much has changed from a retail and a e-tail uh, landscape. So may, maybe take us back to, if you can remember back to, you know, February, March timeframe, you know, can you remember how you, you know, how you felt back then from a, uh, from a retailer, you know, a, a retail analyst perspective, and then, you know, how things have transpired over the nine months, what surprised you, you know, were there some things that came out of this that were positive with so much negativity going on? Yes. When I think back to February, it, there was absolutely no sense or very little sense that this was going to be permanent. Um, I remember taking a trip to Australia and um, I, I had a concern about whether or not Australia would shut down and whether or not there were concerns around my coming from, from the US, but you know, it was absolutely business as usual there at that, that moment in time. The closest that I saw is I had stopped at a target on a layover and there was a notice that you had a limit on the number of, of um, antibacterial hand wipes you could buy, but literally that was, that was it. And a lot of the questions that I got, even from journalists at the time, were supply chain related. And it was all about, well, what's going to happen to the supply of inventory in the spring? Or what does this potentially mean for Q4 if we have less inventory and you can't place orders with, with factories now? And that was pretty much the extent of the questions. And then of course, March happened and all of the stay-at-home orders started to happen. But things happened so quickly. And I mean, because I remember being invited, I had a, a speech I had to give in like mid-March and it was scheduled, I think, for like March 10th or so, somewhere around that time mm -hmm. frame. And they were not canceling it. They were like, it's going forward. And it wasn't, it wasn't until like literally March 9th that they were like, uh, yeah, maybe we will cancel it. <laughs> and we'll, we'll reschedule it in six months. Um, you know, of course, thinking that, you know, things would blow over by then, you know, so, so then, then March happened. And I think that um, the sentiment, um, and I think that this will be familiar to, to everybody listening, but it was that, um, you know, we were in free fall as as an as an industry um, so many industries every industry that was consumer facing not just retail travel um, you know definitely the restaurant industry um, any anything that was reliant on discretionary um, purchasing or business travel you know was was going to be just you know hurt in a way that was beyond comprehension and I remember those initial kind of virtual webinars we did it was all about you know let's not panic let's you know just get informed as much as we can about you know what the what loans the government is going to give and and you know what do you need to do to to make it, make it through the next few months and then things started to open up again in in the summertime and to me i think that you know kind of in that time frame from march through may 
you know, kind of, I remember just being incredibly paranoid about, about the virus and thinking that, you know, kind of, you just have to, you just don't know where you could get it from. It could come from a package. I remember getting questions from retailers. I got, the funniest was from a, um, from a luxury retailer that was like, um, if somebody has COVID, you know, kind of in, in, in sneezes on and, you know, kind of a shirt, does that mean we have to get rid of all of our inventory? And, um, <laughs> you know, our response was, no, in fact, you should send it all to Forrester. We'll take it. <laughs> the, you know, but I mean, it was just, there was just such a lack of, and, you know, just complete understanding of what, what, you know, what could happen and, you know, kind of what puts you at risk. And, um, and I think that things are, you know, there's, there's a, you know, somewhat more clarity now, but what I will say, Mark, that was the single biggest change is that the sense of utter doom that this was going to be so catastrophic and we would never recover from it that existed in March and April never came to fruition. And, you know, there were far fewer companies that went out of business. There were far fewer players that, you know, just collapsed than we thought and that we speculated. To this day, I, I'm shocked that as many restaurants are still as open as they are, you know, and I'm shocked that their numbers are not off by like 80 or 90%. Many of them say their numbers are off only by like, you know, 30%. And, you know, they're able to at least between cutting their staff and, um, you know, kind of stretching out their PPP loans, you, you know, they're actually able to kind of pull through this time. So, you know, I mean, companies like JCPenney and Sears are still hanging in there. You know what, you know, that's amazing. It, you know, kind of, I think that the biggest surprise to me has been the resilience of the industry, you know, and whether that's come through, um, you know, taking out loans and being frugal and, and um, just really penny pinching or whether, it has been because some companies have been smart about how they've pivoted and, you know, they've leaned into to digital and curbside pickup and, um, the, you know, kind of um, a strong e-commerce presence. I mean, whatever path that they've taken, you know, it has served to keep them alive. And um, that is not something that I would have expected, you know, looking out in, in April. Yeah, I, th I think that's a, a great answer. Are there certain, you know, features and functions that, you know, you feel like um, have accelerated, you know, you talked about curbside pickup. And, you know, I think if you were a retailer that was already doing buy online pickup and store, you were able to easily pivot relatively easily to a curbside. But if, if you were one of the retailers that wasn't doing BOPIS, that was almost impossible. So was there, do you agree with that, I guess, first? And then, you know, is there something else that you saw people leaning into that, you know, is now going to become the norm? Well, I, I if if one did not have curbside pickup, I think that you just saw people trying to figure it out pretty quickly, um, and it could be that, or you know, kind of online ordering, or they, you know, that was a significant part of of how you know these companies like um, Instacart and DoorDash were able to get as much traction is because even if you don't have the ability to do that, they offered you the ability to offer that to your customers. I mean, it came at a very you know it was like it came you know the cost 
was a pound of flesh, but you know, nonetheless, it it you know helped you check the box and preserve at least some some market share. You know, kind of definitely the the whole digital ordering piece um, was has you know has had been a significant area of investment. Um, I think what it remains. To, I honestly think it remains to be seen how much really sticks. Um, we have some forecasts and and you know kind of there was an acceleration by a couple of years of a you know kind of what we would have expected maybe by 2023 happened in 2020. You know it's and you know and and so so that that much will stick. But you know kind of we still think that the the vast majority of of transactions will likely revert back to to physical stores um, back over over time. And not the least of which, especially when you take categories like grocery, the whole digital fulfillment piece is actually very costly, and um, it is it's not something that that is um, particularly easy to do. So we are not completely convinced that the supply of those offerings is going to be there, even if the demand may be. But other things that will likely stick will be things like digital payments, any type of contactless payments, remote ordering ahead, you know, or a remote uh, the ability to to check ahead. I mean, that's always been an issue um, with any type of omni-channel is how accurate is your inventory? That was, you know, this, the whole issue with SACS early, that I'd referred to earlier mm-hmm. is like not yep. having that accurate inventory. And I think that a lot of companies have gotten much further along with fixing those problems. And that is something that once you have it um, and you're able to preserve it, there's a tremendous amount of value. And it, it serves the purpose of self-service. You're not necessarily introducing new costs, um, you know, that, that retailers have to absorb. You're just providing more information to customers to help make their shopping experience a little bit easier. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting. Um, you know, DoorDash as an example, um, you know, they went public yesterday. So they, you know, over the last nine months, I don't know what their valuation might have been, you know, nine months ago pre-pandemic, but you know, they they parlayed this into, you know, a, a $35 billion, you know, valuation at uh, at their IPO, and so that's you know kind of a, a one thing, and and you know you called you called out the the part about shopping for groceries. You know, my family we never you know had used Instacart or any home delivery for food shopping. I don't know why. I mean, you know, mostly just wanted to go and, and pick out your own produce and pick out your own meat and, and what have you. And you know, I would say for nine months we've almost exclusively done done that. But I could see us totally going back to the store and and never again if I don't have to um, using a uh, a home shopping. Yeah, yeah, it, it, it's. It, it, I think the the jury is still out on a lot of you, you know kind of this, this speculation around how much of the the e-commerce and the internet behavior sticks. I mean, if you take a company like Target, their curbside pickup is actually well. I mean, you see it in their numbers has been wildly successful, and um, and you can see why. I mean, they don't have any it's minimum. Great. Yeah, it's great. Yep. It's a great service. They do. It's they're pretty quick about it. At least in my experience, um, yep. so customers are likely very happy. They have. A pretty seamless experience, and um, they—it's—they also um, don't have any minimum order that they—they forced on you as a customer. So literally, you can go and say, "Go, you know, kind of pull my toothpaste for me," and they will come and they'll bring it out to your car. And so, what is that? That's con- that is Nordstrom-like concierge service that they have introduced at Target, which is fantastic for us as customers right now, but not particularly fantastic for Target long term. Unless they start charging higher prices. So that becomes really the big question is um, 
how are they going to, you know, kind of make that um, cost effective over time? Or do they cut back on some of those services? Or do they force you to have a minimum transaction um, value? Or do they lump it into some kind of paid tier offering like their version of Amazon Prime in the future? Because it's just, it's just not sustainable. I mean, there's a reason that, you know, kind of companies like Target have not had concierge offerings up until now. It's just not cost-effective. The devil's in the details. You've probably heard that phrase time and time again in your professional life. Projects get started with great intentions, but you no longer have the time to pay attention to the little things that can make the difference between success and failure. At Details Interactive, you can discuss your business with a seasoned direct-to-consumer marketing executive who has helped launch and grow web businesses and integrate multi-channel marketing initiatives. Learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Maybe we, we talk a bit about, you know, Cyber 5, so the period of time from, you know, Thanksgiving through uh, Cyber Monday, and, and it seems like, you know, it, it got earlier this year, uh, brands were, you know, being more promotional earlier and, and earlier, and, and over the years, it's extended, you know, the Cyber Monday into Cyber Tuesday into Green Monday. So w- what did you see uh, this year during that very key time for retailers? Stores were terrible. Um, when when you see, and I use data from Placer.ai, which has a lot of the physical store um, information, and, and that was not unexpected because every store was trying to avoid having crowds in its uh, inside. So um, all of those numbers were were down, and you, you know, kind of catastrophically off of of last year's numbers. Um, now, did e-commerce make up some of that delta to some degree? But e-commerce is still um, a minority of transactions. And I mean, even during the holiday season, it's usually not going to be more than 30%. And if that 30% is still only growing at like 20 or 30% year over year, which is what some of the data points suggested that the industry shook out as. Um, and if your stores, um, which are the majority of that revenue are down by like 50 to 80%, you're still going to be off. You know, you're not going to see a net net positive time frame. Um, and that's why we did, st- I think that a lot of people anticipated that, you know, they weren't going to have um, a great Thanksgiving weekend or series of days subsequent to Thanksgiving. So that's why you saw the pushes to try to bring as much sale forward into October as possible. Or um, you saw, you know, three weeks of Black Friday specials through every weekend in in November for some retailers. Did it actually drive very much? The data points that we saw suggested that it did not. And um, as much as retailers were trying to pull sales forward, the consumer wasn't necessarily responding. You know, that kind of that kind of tells you where it is. You know, and um, now that said, ecom you know, kind of for what it is, is is trending up. It is positive. You know, you've heard all of these stories about, you know, the carriers having more volume than, than ever before and being later than they've ever been before. I, I feel like that's a narrative that we hear every year. And, you know, if anything, there's less pressure to deliver on time this year because it's not like people are going to be having these massive holiday get-togethers like they have in the past. So there's a little bit more 
of the flexibility from that standpoint um, to, you know, kind of get things um, to people when, you know, kind of at, at the pace that that may be appropriate for, you know, the carrier to, to get it to somebody. Yeah, you know, the, the carriers were signaling, you know, six weeks ago. Um, and, and unlike any time in the past, I, I think you saw many retailers online, you know, putting notices up, order early, you know, our shippers are telling us they're not going to be able to meet demand. So, um, you know, maybe that pulled up, um, you know, some business as well. So before we get into, you know, 2021 and, and your kind of your view into the future, you did have one question, you know, people come to you, you know, for your thought leadership. How do you deal with, you know, all the, you know, the concept of the shiny new object? You know, I'm an e-commerce guy, you know, I get called on by tons and tons of, of new providers that are out there with new things. How do you counsel people like me on what to think seriously about and what to pass on? Yeah, that is is something that we spend a lot of time trying to to dig into, and and a lot of our time is spent demystifying, you know, those bright shiny objects, and and trying to differentiate between what could be meaningful and what may just be hype. And a lot of it, um, you know, comes down to having lots of different conversations with people throughout the ecosystem. It's the service providers. It's the people who've built the technology. It's people who have implemented the technology. And um, a lot, you know, and we have, I mean, one of the advantages that we have is we we do have a trusted network of, of people that um, we can often call on and, um, you know, get their their points of view and, and get their perspectives on, on things as well. And that helps to, you know, kind of shape a conclusion because um, you're absolutely right. I mean, a lot of times you will see something Thing from you know a technologist and um, it, you know it's it's hard you know there there there's just it's hard to not be seduced by the the message you know and for a period of time like you know I mean the biggest um, you know kind of you know, I guess Casanovas of retail would be like you know the Googles and the Amazons because every week they would come up with something new and everybody in retail would you know just be all you know just so deferential and and you know you know believing of, of this technology that they've now released is gonna forever change the world and whatnot and you know what we do is we spend a lot of time tracking these technologies very closely um, you know after their launches you know kind of years after their launches and we see you know, what's the consumer adoption been or what has the retailer adoption been? And, you know, of the retailers that have tried something, what has been the impact and what have been the lessons that these companies have learned? And, um, and I think that when technology innovation, you know, kind of when all of this was, has, you know, was new, like, you know, in the early 2000s, it was a lot harder to, you know, dispel myths. But now that there has been like, you know, a decade and a half of, of enough experiments where you've seen things and people have told you stories that, you know, kind of only ended up biting people in the hide later on. There's more, I think, of a, of a willingness to be skeptical. And, you know, kind of the skepticism is, is not as, um, as novel <laughs> as maybe, you know, it was like 20 years ago, where if you were skeptical, like you were just a Luddite who didn't, you know, understand technology or appreciate it. Um, now, I think that there's, um, you know, kind 
of um, a little bit more of a circumspect approach. And it's like, you know, eye rolling around. Yeah, whatever. This is, you know, another crazy experiment by Amazon or whoever. Right. Yeah. And, and so now, you know, thinking into, you know, 2021, what are you seeing, you know, where, where there's a vaccine hopefully on the way, um, you know, maybe it doesn't get, you know, completely rolled out till late spring, uh, middle of the year. W- what are you counseling, um, you know, your retail clients about for this coming year? Well, I don't know that there is any easy answer. And a lot of what we saw through much of 2020 will likely continue through much of 2021. There was a great article that was recently in the Wall Street Journal about a little moshi shop in Japan that is one of, I think, a handful of businesses in the world that's more than a thousand years old. It is just fascinating because it was a fascinating article and I encourage everyone to try to, to, to go get their, their hands. I think it was the journal. It may have been the New York Times. But, um, but anyway, if you kind of Google, you know, Mushi Shop Japan, thousand years old, you'll, you'll find it. And, um, but the, the key takeaways of that were you have got to preserve cash and you got to pivot when you've got to pivot. And, and I think that those are two really, really valuable pieces of advice even now, which is you just got to get through this storm. This is, um, you know, an awful period in history. And this will be something that our children are going to look back on as, you know, kind of a, just a life-changing moment in their, in their lives. But, you know, you've got to preserve cash and you've just got to do what you need to do to get through this. Um, And then if it is important to um, completely transform your business because you see that the demand for your product may not be there long-term, you have to figure out how you're going to to change and transform either your products or your service offerings um, in order to be something, you know, that resonates more. That's really it is, is, you know, I mean, I don't see things getting better in 2021. I wouldn't bet on, you know, some great aid package coming to anybody's rescue in 2021. It's, you know, you've got to figure out how you are going to make it through yourself and, you know, kind of hope that your customers are there with you in that journey forward. Yeah, that's great. Preserve cash and pivot. There you go. Well, we're, we're down to the end of the time. This is a great conversation. Uh, Sucharita, where can people reach out to you on social media if they would like to connect? Yeah, I um, tend to be on Twitter and LinkedIn, and my Twitter handle is S Mulperus. That's my maiden name, but S M U L P U R U. And um, on LinkedIn, it's uh, my my married name, which is Sucharita Kadali. So, um, so either of those are, are usually where um, I'm uh, commenting on something almost every day. Well, that's great. I urge everybody to uh, to follow. Uh, along because I think you'll get great information and uh, learn a lot about the industry. So anyway, um, have a uh, happy holiday, happy new year. Thank you. And and, uh, I wish everybody in your family good health. Thank you, Mark. The same to you. That's it. Today's game ball goes to Sucharita Kadali for coming on the marketing playbook. Her insights on this past year and her outlook for 2021 were very interesting. I hope that you're able to take away some thought provoking concepts for the new year. Thank you, Playbook Marketers, for listening to another episode. If you want to check out more pages of the Marketing Playbook, make sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast spot and leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on Twitter at Details Interact 
and learn more at detailsinteractive.com. Until next time, the devil's in the details. (laughs) 